me of um, you know the the innocence and the and the just the childish. And as she was running and praying, she tripped on a curb and she fell. She got her clothes dirty and she tore her dress. She got back up, brushed herself off, started running again, and she ran. She once again began to pray and said, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late, but you don't have to shove me either. <laughs> you know, it's just, a, that, just that beautiful view, you know. And then there was a story that was told of the kindergarten teacher who was observing her classroom as her children were drawing. And as uh, she went around, occasionally she would check to see what they were doing. And she got to one little girl who was working really diligently. And she asked her what she was drawing. And the little girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, well, but, but nobody knows what God looks like. And she said, they will in a minute. You know, and, and children, when they have that view, you know, it's, it's funny. And, I, and, and, it's, and it's, you know, it makes you smile. But there's something wrong with adults who have a similar childlike view. You know, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, acted like a child, you know, because I was a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. And there was a point in time where, you know, we're to lay aside our childish childish viewpoints of God and and adopt what His Word tells us as far as who He is uh, and, uh, and what He would have us to do. You know, in the passage that we're looking at in our ongoing study through the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Because there were people that were there who were adults who had a childlike view of who God was and is. And as a result, you know, so many of us like to blame God for our own actions and the consequences that follow, while others want to create God in our own image and likeness and not allow God to reveal himself to us as to who he really is. And so in Luke 19, looking starting at verse 28, uh, we look at a passage that, as mentioned, is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry or what we call Palm Sunday. And in verse 28, it says, And after Jesus had said these things... He was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words." You know, as we read this account and the parallel accounts that we'll see in the other Gospels, it's hard not to picture, you know, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the celebration-like atmosphere that's taking place. The passage records, as I mentioned, the triumphal entry or what we call Palm Sunday. It's mind-boggling when you think and we read this passage to see that such a week in history 
began on such a wonderful high note and ended as tragically as it did just a few days to follow. It's just amazing to see the fickleness of the heart of man where one day we elevate somebody, the next day that we tear them down. One day they're the greatest thing in the world, and the next day, you know, they're, you know, from the outhouses, I like to say, working with professional athletes, you know, you go from the penthouse to the outhouse, and sometimes it's all in the course of the same game. And it's interesting and fascinating how oftentimes we also look at God that way. You know, we praise Him, we thank Him, we, we, we give Him glory, and the next moment in time we're cursing Him, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're blaming Him, we're accusing Him, we're wondering where He is and what He's doing and, and how quickly our hearts change. In this particular passage, we, we look at this in Jerusalem's borders were overflowing with two to three million Jews who have traveled from all over the place to come into town for the time of the Passover. Um, they had whitewashed all the tombs on the way into the city so that no one would accidentally rub up against them and become ceremonially unclean so they can't participate in the sacrifices that take place. And so it's a time of tremendous celebration. It's a time of recognizing God's goodness to the nation of Israel, uh, you know, the feast of Passover, for those who aren't familiar, was uh, there was a time where God said, if you would just put the blood of the, of the lamb up, uh, over the doorpost of your house, the angel of death, death will pass over your house, and God's judgment would be enacted on those who basically didn't do what God told them to do. And you know, in God's judgment system's no different today. He says, you know, if you want God's judgment to pass over you, they were told that, you know, to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their heart. We today are told to put the blood of the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, over the doorpost of our own heart. And the judgment of God will pass over those of us who trust in his sacrifice on our behalf. So God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his his ways have not changed. And he uses those to be able to illustrate the truth of of the sacrifice that Christ makes on our behalf. So... This is what they were there to celebrate. Um, All the priests were on duty, 24 priests were on duty. Uh, They were to sing and offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation. During this time, they would sing the Hallel praise songs or psalms, uh, Psalms 113 through 118. And uh, everyone knew that that was the responsibility of the priest. But for some reason, the multitude, as we see here in this passage, began to, to, to sing these praises as Jesus was on his way to enter into Jerusalem. And so with that, in ba- with that in mind, we have to ask the question, why in the world did these people break out in this spontaneous praise, and what are this, what's the significance of all the events that are going on leading up to Jesus entering into Jerusalem? And so there's four things I want to share with you. The first is, is, <clears throat> is that we see that you know, prophecy was being fulfilled. Prophecy was being fulfilled, and there's three things that we'll look at as it relates to this. The first is, notice the selection of the cult. I want to turn back to Matthew's account in, verse, in chapter 21 and take a look because as we look at all the gospel accounts and we put it together, we have a better composite picture of what was going on. In uh, Luke, we see the same thing, and Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. In Matthew chapter 21, and starting with verse 2, uh, again, we hear Jesus saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them. There was two of them. And um, one was the mother, the other was the colt. And said, that, Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he would send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and this is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did exactly as Jesus directed them. So we're told that all this took place very clearly in verse 4. This took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. You know, simply put, it took place because God said that it would 500 years prior to the time of our Lord coming to this earth. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that this day was coming. And he said, you know what, this this took place so that what God said would happen would happen exactly as God says that it will. And it's important that we recognize the significance of this. Folks, whenever God says something, He means it. Whatever God says is going to happen will happen exactly as God says it will happen. And that should bring all of us who have come to faith in Christ great comfort 
because we know that, you know what, there's nothing that can happen that comes and happens outside of the sovereign will of God. As I've mentioned to you many times, you know, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. The reality of all of it is, is that God's, our, our time here on earth is appointed by God. We won't die a day sooner. We won't live a day longer. And we need to recognize and understand during the process that we have tremendous comfort knowing that God is in control of all things. You know, when Job was to be tested by the devil, he had to run it past God in order that he would be allowed to do what he did. And if you remember quite clearly, God told him he could do certain things, but he put restrictions and limitations on what he could do. So yeah, you can do that, you can do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. You can do this. You can't take his life. And, you know, and kind of laid it all out. And, and every time I read that, I'm comforted to know that, you know what, whatever I'm currently going through in life is okay because God has ordained it for his purposes and for his glory. See, whenever God says something, he means it. He's not like man in that there's any darkness in him at all. He can't lie or deceive us. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen exactly as God says it's going to happen. So as he spoke to the prophet Zechariah some 500 years prior to this particular day, he said, there is a day coming and here's what's going to happen. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You know, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. And as we go through this, and we'll see as we go through, there are several things that happen that, that, that are left out. And the reason that they're left out, he says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And all of these were fulfillment of what the prophets had earlier said. Now, there's some key things that are left out. If you go back to this, this quote from Zechariah 9.9, You'll notice that the first thing that Zechariah says, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Well, in the quote that we find in, the, in Matthew's account, that's left out. And the reason's simple, because this isn't the day that they would rejoice. Remember, over and over again, Jesus told his disciples, Listen, I'm going into Jerusalem, and when I go there, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be convicted, I'm going to be uh, tortured, I'm going to be murdered, in essence. The whole purpose of Jesus going into Jerusalem was to fulfill the predetermined plan of God by the will of God, Acts chapter 2. You know, there isn't anything that happened to Jesus that wasn't according to the plan of God. Jesus took on the appearance of a man. He was found in the likeness of a man. He took on human flesh. And the reason for it was he was obedient, obedient to the, death, to the point of death even upon a cross. His mission was to come and to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to this earth for the express purpose of offering his life as an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God on behalf of the sins of the world for those who would trust in him that the angel of death or the judgment of God would pass over us and go to those who choose to reject this sacrifice. So we see that it isn't a time to rejoice. As, we, as I've already said, the end of this week will be a time of tremendous lamentation and weeping and mourning. It wasn't a time of rejoicing. That time will come when Jesus returns. He also goes on and he talks about shout and triumph. Well, it certainly wasn't, it didn't see, appear to be a triumphal week when you get right down to all the events that occurred later. And so God very selectively says, you know what, this doesn't apply yet. There is a day coming where Jesus will return and his feet will t stand on the Mount of Olives and he will come in triumph and it will be a day that all of Israel will recognize him whom they have pierced and mourn over him and realize that he is who he claimed to be and that they will receive him as Lord and Savior and there will be a triumphant return of Jesus. But that didn't happen the first time. And so when we look at this, we begin to recognize and understand as you go back to uh, Luke chapter 19, you know, Jesus gives very specific instructions as to what the disciples are to do. Notice in Luke 19 again in verse 30, he says, go into the village opposite you. It says you're going to enter and you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. So now we know from Matthew's account there is a colt or, you know, a baby donkey for a better, lack of a better way to put it. And there's the mother donkey that's there. He says go untie both of them. So there's two animals. But in this particular case, the emphasis is on the colt. And he goes in and says, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone ask, asks you why you're untying it, just simply say the Lord has need of it. And those who were 
sent, went away, found it just as he said, as they were untying the colt. Its owner said, why are you untying it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And so everything happened exactly as Jesus said that it would. Now, as I read this account, some thoughts jumped out at me uh, that got me kind of all fired up, for lack of a better way to put it. And as, as a friend of mine says down south, you know what? If this doesn't get you fired up, you got wet wood. And uh, so I don't know if it's going to fire you up or not. If not, maybe you got wet wood from last week. But the bottom line is this, is that, you know, I want you to put yourself in the position of the person who owned the donkey and the colt. Imagine, imagine knowing the scripture. Imagine being familiar with Zechariah 9.9. Imagine Jesus sends his disciples to you and says to you, the Lord has need of your colt. And you're thinking, this is unbelievable. God is fulfilling his scripture, his word, through my life. And you have the freedom to choose on whether you give him the cult or not. And yet God in his sovereignty knows exactly that you will. This drives people crazy, and I get so tired of hearing all the arguments about pre, you know, free will and God's sovereignty, and do we really have the choice? And you know what? The Bible so clearly teaches that you and I have choice, and God is sovereign. God knows how we'll choose before we choose, and yet God still says you and I have the freedom to choose. So here he is, and can you imagine he's th- sitting there thinking, Scripture is being fulfilled Through me. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. Same thing happened to him. He's going through and he's he's studying the scriptures. He's searching the scriptures to see if Jesus really is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the promised one of God. He and Nicodemus are buddies and they're going through scripture together and their minds are open and they're saying, God, reveal to me your truth. And they go through the Old Testament and all of a sudden he comes across the passages that say, hey, you know what? That, that, That the Messiah will be laid to rest with the wealthy even though he himself is materially poor. Joseph of Arimathea, being a wealthy man, the Bible says, owns this tomb. And he goes and he says, hey, I want the body of Jesus to put in my tomb. And we've always laughed about it because, you know, people go, man, isn't it amazing that he gave up the family tomb? And, you know, and and Joseph, it wasn't that big a deal because he knew Jesus only needed it for the weekend. So, you know, but, but at the same time, you know, at the same time, he was still fired up about the fact that, you know, this is, you know, the tomb that God had given to me, I now can use in his service and for his glory. And so here we have the same thing. This colt, you know, this donkey that God you have given to me, now you come back and say that you need it and I'm fulfilling scripture by being obedient to what you're calling me to do and I have the freedom to choose to do that. And listen, if you think that's exciting for them, it should be just as exciting for us. You know why? Because the word of God says that, you know, we are to do the works that God has chosen for us to do before the foundation of the world. That as we are obedient to God's leading in our life, God equally uses our freedom to choose to serve Him and obey Him and to walk with Him and to use the spiritual gifts that God has given us. When you and I do that, think about this. We, have, we, we, we are just as much in the loop as the owner of the cult and as Joseph of Arimathea in fulfilling Scripture even in our midst. When you and I invest the investment of the gospel in the life of another person, and that person comes to faith and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins, we, right before our very eyes, see God fulfill His word through us. I mean, if you can't get excited about that, I mean, you got wet wood. I mean, think about that. Think about the fact that God wants to fulfill His word through you and me. Now the question is, what's he doing through us? And the only thing that differentiates one person from another is one person being willing and obedient and using the gifts that God's given you to serve him. I mean, that's it. I mean... One more thing before moving on, you know, is that notice he says, tell them that the Lord, Kyrios, the Lord has need of it. I mean, think about them. They're going to go into this town. They're going to basically steal a donkey. 
you know, a cult. And they're like, hey, you know, it reminds me of back in Moses, like, okay, wait a minute, Lord, you want, now, you're going to, you want me to go tell Pharaoh to let all your people go. All right, now, can, can I tell, can I tell him who sent me? And he said, just tell him I am. Just tell him, hey, I, God sent you. And he goes, okay, just checking. <laughs> I mean, you know, think about what God sometimes asks us to do, and it kind of seems crazy to us in our own, you know, kind of limited viewpoint of things. But they were just saying, you know, we're going to go take this. And he said, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to get it, and when you go to get it, the owner's going to say, what are you doing on tying it? And all you need to tell him is, the Lord has need of it. And notice that everything happened exactly as Jesus said that it would. They went, they saw the donkey, the colt, they started to untie it. The owner said, hey, hey, what are you doing to my donkey? He said, well, what are you untying it for? Well, because the Lord has need of it. And here's the beauty of this. No argument. Just let them take it. Does that reflect your attitude? When God comes to you and says, hey, you know what? The stuff that I have given you, the stuff, material things, money, resources, gifts, all the stuff, the stuff that I have given you, I now need you to use it in my service. What do you do? I mean, some of us would be like, the Lord who? I mean, what, what are you talking about? Get away from my donkey. You know, you're not taking my donkey. And some of us miss the blessing of God because that's our attitude. When God comes to you and says, hey, I need what I have given you, you just go, okay, it's yours. Or does your attitude reflect as we saw the rich young ruler? You know, I, 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 you know in order to trust in me, you're going to have to sell everything, give it all away, and then come and follow me. And his attitude was like, uh-uh, that ain't happening. See, why do you think God gives you what he gives you? It's a blessing that we can even enjoy it at all when we consider the fact that it's all his. It would be like somebody allowing you to stay at their beach house and then saying, okay, I, I need it back. And you go, I'm not moving. I just read it. I, this just, just happened in Georgia. There was a lady that went on vacation. And she, some of you may have seen this. Did you see this? She was in Europe for a couple of weeks. She came home and there was someone living in her house. She drove up and there was a, a car parked in her driveway. The lights were all on. She didn't go in. She called the police. The police came and they interviewed this lady. And at first she said she was renting the house. Then she said it was her house. Then they found out that she just kind of moved in. She took all the pictures and stuff down, put her own pictures up. She was tearing up carpet that she didn't like. And, and, and then she was, she was just making herself at home. And, and they were like, well, what are you doing? I was like, well, this is my house. And we all sit there going, huh? what? Are you serious? I mean, and, oh, and on top of that, she called the utility company and she put the utility, the electric utilities in her name. And the police said, I've never, they've never seen anybody this crazy in their life. And I thought, well, you know what? They have, she, then you haven't met God's people. Because <laughs> that's God's people. We do that. It's like God says, here, Chuck, you know, I, I give you these things. I entrust these things to you. You're, you're to be my steward, my manager of my resources. And then God comes and says, oh, now, Chuck, I need this to reach people with the gospel. I need this to build my church. I need this for this purpose. And you go, huh, that's mine. And he goes... No, it's not. <laughs> Some of us, sometimes I, I felt this one. <laughs> you know, but whatever he's got to do, it's like, no, no, it's not. It's not ours. It's God's. Do we really understand that? The cult owner did. That was the end of the conversation. The Lord has need of it. Then take it. It's his. Let him have it. You know, does your attitude reflect this man or the rich young ruler? Does your attitude reflect, you know, Zacchaeus or people that hold on tight and say, God, if you want it, you're going to have to wrestle me for it. And then I just point you back to Jacob and God just tweaked him. And uh, it's a reminder to me. It's like wrestling with God. God just went, oh, I'll touch your hip. And that was it the rest of his life. He was hippity hopping all over the place, you know, as a reminder. So I'm like, you know what? No, you don't need to do that. You want it? It's yours. You can have it. 
And so my prayer for all of us is that, you know, God continues to free us from the bondage of our possessions. That God would continue to free us from the bondage of our possessions so that we can use those to reach others for the kingdom of God and to give Him glory. Now, notice also, that's the selection of the cult. Now, notice the symbolism of all of this. It was a cult on which, notice in verse 30, a cult tied on which no one has yet ever sat. In the symbol of all this, it was, it was suitable for sacred purposes according to the Old Testament, Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3. You know, it shows Jesus' control over all of creation and that he sat on this cult that no one had ever sat on, that it was tame, that he is in control of everything. It's a wonderful and beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. It's also, you know, a reminder that Jesus fulfilled a purpose, you know, the predetermined plan of God. You know, no one ever sat on this. No one ever had this role. No one ever did what Jesus has done, and no one will ever do it again. He said on the cross, it is finished. There is no need to add anything to his sacrifice. <coughs> it always breaks my heart when I think of people who think they got to add something to what Jesus has done. You know, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And anything that comes after that, is, be, is because of what he has already done in our life. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus giving money. It's not Jesus plus reading the Bible. It's not Jesus plus our own efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. Anything that comes after, it's faith first and then works that are preordained by the will of God before the foundation of the world. It is an act of obedience, an act of transformation. It's not an addition to what Jesus has done. It is Jesus crucified, resurrected. It's all him and not us. Anything we do after that is because of what he's already done in our life. He sat upon a cult where no one has ever sat. And throughout all of human history, no one will ever take the place that Jesus occupies throughout all of eternity. You know, the symbolism of all of it, you know, as we look at this thing. And also in Matthew's quote of Zechariah, we read that the colt is a foal of a beast of burden. And I like that because Jesus bore our sins. You know, Jesus took on the sins of the world. He says, cast all your cares upon me and I'll care for you. You know, it was a, it was a beast of burden. And Jesus took those burdens for you and I who trust in him. You know, the donkey was a symbol of peace. It was also, you know, something that in the days of King David, you know, kings rode into town on donkeys. It was kind of like, you know, the limo that we see today. They rode into town on donkeys, and if they were on a donkey, that means they, they came to bring peace, as opposed to those who would come in conquering on a horse. And you want to read something, read Revelation 19, where Jesus comes on a horse as a conquering uh, warrior, and all the saints will come with him. And we see the picture that Jesus has come at this time to offer peace to man from God. He comes on a colt, on a donkey, and he rides into town with an offering of peace. And he says, I've come to bring you peace from God, and here's the terms of the peace. And here's where so many folks in our culture get a little bit confused, and I want to make it as clear as possible. What were the terms of the peace offering from God? And here's what it is. Number one, if you want to have peace with God, you need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. God sets a standard of holiness, and every one of us falls short. None of us are perfect. You want to have peace with God? You need to recognize that, you know what, you're a sinner. Number two, once you acknowledge that you're a sinner, then you repent and you turn from sin. You say, God, you're right. I'm a liar. I'm going to stop lying. God, you're right, I'm an immoral person, I'm going to stop immorality. God, you're right, I'm a cheater, I'm going to stop cheating. God, you're right, what you say about me is true, I'm going to turn from that. And we realize that, you know what, that in and of itself isn't good enough because we'll turn right around and go back to what we were doing before. Okay, I'll stop lying, but now I'm going to start cheating. You know, it just doesn't work. And then he says, well, then you need to recognize or respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. 
that Jesus came to die on the cross to shed his blood for the sins of the world. That he was buried and three days later he rose again from the dead. And whoever trusts in him as the provider of that sacrifice that is pleasing to God puts the blood of Jesus over the doorpost of our hearts, so to speak, and believes in his death on the cross, his resurrection on our behalf, and receives him as their Lord, Savior, King of kings, then the Bible says to those who do, we become children of God to those who believe in his name. Do you understand? That is God's offer of peace. Jesus rode in town on that beast of burden, on that colt that no one else ever sat, no one else will ever sit. And he says, if you want to have peace with God, here's the deal. And you either receive that offer of peace or you reject it. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. The folks outside of Jerusalem that day began to lay their garments on the ground. In our culture, we would say they began to roll out the red carpet. And they brought it to him. They threw their garments on the colt. They put Jesus on it as he was going. They were spreading their garments in the road. Other passages were told they were taking branches, palm branches. That's why we call Palm Sunday. And they were laying them down before him as he was going toward Jerusalem. And they were worshiping him, recognizing him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. They were receiving him that day problem was they were receiving him as their earthly king and not their spiritual king. Because these same people that were praising God later in that week were yelling, crucify him. He went from the penthouse in their eyes to the outhouse in a few short days because they didn't like what God had to say. They didn't like how God chose to do things. They wanted a conquering hero that that usurped Rome and kicked Rome out and set up an earthly kingdom, and that wasn't what Jesus came to do the first time. He will set up his kingdom the second time, and that's the difference between the Zechariah quote in 9.9 versus what we see reflected in the New Testament. So as we look at all this, these people, they began praising God in verse 37 through 40. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, the disciples began to praise God, notice, joyfully and with a loud voice for first all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, the reasons that they praised God were first of all because of all the miracles that they miracles that they had seen. Remember, these folks were coming to Jerusalem from everywhere and they had seen or heard all of the miracles, signs and wonders that Jesus had done. They had seen the withered man's hand healed in the temple. They had seen lepers cured. They had seen people of every disease that was known to mankind at that time healed by the touch of Jesus. They had seen, you know, the eyes of the blind open. They had seen dead people come back to life. They had seen all of these things, and they were praising God. And the reason they praised God for the miracles was, according to uh, John's gospel, where he went in and Thomas said, you know what, I'm not going to believe that you're the Savior until I put my finger in the... In the, in, in, the, in the wounds from the nails and I put my fist in the, in, in the side from where they jabbed you with the spear and Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen and it goes on in that passage, passage to say and Jesus did all of these signs that we would believe that he is the Christ the son of the living God the reason Jesus did all of that in the big scope of things wasn't just the compassion of healing a person who had a temporary disease of whatever kind, it was to identify himself as God's promised Savior. And they were praising God because they had seen him do all of these things. My question for us is, do we praise God for all the miracles that we see God do in our midst? You got up today. I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm learning, and I joke about this all the time, you know, with the doctor's appointments and the drugs that they're giving me and the diet that I'm on and the supplements that I'm taking and all the stuff that I'm doing. I said, you know, I told the guys the other night in our elder meeting, I said, hey, fellas, I just want to let you know, it's a lot of hard work trying to stay alive. <laughs> now, now, you may not have, you know, you may not be at that point in your life where you realize how much hard work it is to try to stay alive because you just get up and you go, hey, I'm up again, whether I want to be or not. You know, and we moan and groan about, oh, I'm up. I'm not a good morning person. Hey, listen, what's the alternative? 
Think about that tomorrow morning when you get up for work. It's like, you know what? Stop whining and moaning and groaning. The first thing you need to think about is when your eyes open is, praise God, you gave me another day to serve you. Stop moaning and groaning about everything. We complain about everything. We need to start in everything giving him thanks and praise. They praise God for all the miracles that they saw. You know, I see miracles every day. Every day is a miracle. When I see my grandson smile, it's a miracle. And I praise God that I'm still there. Even when I hear him cry, although he knows that he's gone at this point. But, <laughs> but you know, and I just see that smile and I see that face and I hear him laugh. I go, you know, this is a miracle to be able to be here and to live long enough, not only to see my children grow, but now to see grandchildren. And I praise God for that, and I don't take that for granted. And none of us should. We need to stop whining and moaning and groaning and start praising God for everything. The other day when I was at the church property and, you know, and it rained and we're looking at all this, you know, instead of whining and moaning about the fact that we couldn't pave because it rained, I praise God that it rained because every one of the modular buildings that they delivered leaked down the middle of all of them because they didn't seal the, the roofs right. And so I go, hey, God, thank you that it rained and I praise you that it rained before we moved in. We could have went four months with no rain and all the kids could have been there. Everything would have been decorated. All the furniture would have been in there and that still would have leaked because it still wasn't sealed. But now... Go seal it now. You know, get it done, taken care of before the next rain comes. But, you know, there's always a reason to praise God because, you know, it's just a matter of perspective. It's a matter of seeing God's hand in everything. And, and I would just encourage you, you know, stop whining. I can, I, how's that? You know, I mean, what else can you say? It's like, you know, stop whining and start praising God. And I'll guarantee you this. The more that you praise God, the less you'll find to whine about. You just want to run around and have crackers in your, you know, in your pocket when you hear people whining and say, you want a little cheese and cracker with that wine. You know what I mean? It's like, gee, you know, here, you know, make a statement, hand crackers out at work, you know, to people that are whining and see if they pick up on it. But, you know, we need to praise God, you know, in everything. Let's give him praise. You know, that was the reason they saw the miracles, but also those miracles were designed by God for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is this so that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you believed? Have you believed? You know, Martha, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Really? When? That time in my life where I recognized I was a sinner before God, that time in my life where I repented of sin and I trusted in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for my sin, that day in my life, that moment in time when I received him as my savior. And that is totally different than the moment I was baptized or the moment I joined the church or the moment I was married in the church or the moment that I did this or that and the other thing. No, listen, there's only one historic moment in all of our lives where we come to a crossroads and that is that, that time in our life where we recognize our sinfulness, we repent of our sin, we respond by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again from the dead. And today, in the best knowledge that I have, I receive you and only you as my Savior from sin and death. Have you believed? When? It's got to be clear. It's got to be clear. The second reason that they praised God was that they identified Him as the Messiah. Notice this. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, peace in heaven. And you know what? The only way there will ever be peace on earth is you've got to have peace with God first in heaven. There was no peace on earth at this particular time. I mean, there was nothing but trouble and, and calamity on earth. There's nothing but trouble and calamity on earth even today. But you know what? You and I can have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can have peace in our own lives. And when we have peace in our own lives, we can have peace with one another. But it all starts with peace first with God. Do you have peace with God by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. You know, people were praising God, and rightly so, for keeping His promises, for sending His Deliverer, His Savior, yet not all of them were thrilled by what they had just heard. Notice this in verse 39, you know, the, the reaction of some of the Pharisees. They said, hey, tell them to shut up. Folks, listen to me. 
we live in a world that is hostile to God. And people are going to tell you and me to shut up when it comes to telling people about Jesus. But that's not an option. We are to confess Him with our mouth, believe in Him in our heart, but we are to confess Him with our lips. We are to testify before mankind of the goodness of God. We are also to testify before mankind of the coming judgment of God. We are to speak up with our lips that if people do not recognize their sinfulness and repent from it and trust in Christ, they will be held accountable for their sins and be judged and are condemned already by God. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it. The world's already been condemned. When was it condemned? When Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, sin came into the world. And through sin came spiritual death and physical death. We're to tell people they're lost and, and, and they're on their way to hell unless they recognize their sin and repent of it and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. We are to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and all the outermost parts of the world. And in our case, it's say we're to be you know, witnesses in, in Santa Ana and Anaheim and in Orange and in Anaheim Hills and, and, and in every place place that God has you, we are to testify and proclaim the excellency of him who has called us from darkness to light. People are going to tell us to shut up, but just as the disciples said, I'm sorry, we can't. It's not an option. And we are being silenced, and it is noticeable when 39 million Christians don't go to the polls to vote, our voice is silenced by the fact that we are doing nothing. We have become apathetic and indifferent, and as a result, our salt has become tasteless, and it will be trampled underfoot by men. That is why the most ridiculous things are happening in our culture, because we are doing nothing about it. We are sitting around silently being, you know, condemned by the world and everybody, the, the, the minority belief, whatever it is, we got people, we got guys showing up at high school dances wearing dresses because no one can say anything to them because somebody may sue them. And it's like, you know what? Men are men. Women are women. We need to recognize and understand that's how God created us. And we can't sit around and allow babies to be getting killed. We can't sit around and have people feeling sorry for people who have disease and say, you know what? But that's okay. We'll kill children in order to do research over their dead bodies so that we can find a cure for these diseases and we look at these commercials and we see it happening and nobody shouts and says that is a, it's, it's just murder before God we see people trying to redefine marriage, trying to redefine what, who men and women are. We see it all the time, and they're vocal and they're vo you know, and boisterous about it, and we just all sit around saying, well, everybody's entitled to their opinion. That is right. And so are we as God's people to step up and say, you know what, this is what the Word of God has to say. And some people, they hate to even hear this, because they go, oh, wait, what does this have to do with what we believe? Everything. It has everything to do with it. That's why there's a disconnect. That's why 10% of believers don't allow anything that they say they believe to impact their decisions in life. Do you live out what you say you believe? That's the only way you know whether you believe it or not. Anybody could say it. That's why we look at voting records. That's why we look at talk is cheap, say whatever you want. Politicians will tell you whatever it is that they think that they have to say to whatever group they're speaking to based on polls and samples and, and, and research and whatever i got to say to get elected. And that's why you look and say, but how have you voted? What actions have you taken? And you can talk all you want, but your actions speak louder than this rhetoric that's coming out of your mouth. And so we vote according to actions taken. We have got to get our heads out of the sand and we have got to be the light that God has called us to be or we are going to lose this nation to godless people and it will be no one's fault but our own for sitting around silent and apathetic and indifferent. And here's the warning that goes along with it. I want you to notice something. It is a privilege to praise God. And if we don't do it, the rocks will. He said, you know what? Tell them to shut up. And Jesus said, you know what? They can shut up. But if they shut up, even the rocks will shout praises to my name. I want to praise them. I don't want to be dumber than a rock. I mean, these guys, their hearts were harder than a rock. 
But I just thank God that, you know what, that the, the gospel is the power or dynamite of God. And dynamite blows up rocks. That's why we preach the gospel. Because you ever see somebody, you go, man, that person's heart's so hard. Eh, stick of the dynamite of the gospel will take care of that. You know, we just preach the word. We preach Christ and him crucified, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And let God do the work. His dynamite will blow up the hardest of human hearts. He says, you know what? Those who reject Jesus and try to silence his people have those types of hard hearts. You know, and the question is, has he touched your life? If so, then praise him. Number three, notice the persecution that was predicted for those who refuse to trust in Christ. It says, when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over. And the word wept as he lamented. He, he, he sobbed like a parent who sobs for a child that's making wrong decisions. The heartache for a child just that makes the wrong decisions. They know all the right things to do and they still choose to do wrong. And the lamenting or that heartache that you, you've been there, we've all been there, where your heart just breaks when you see a child making decisions like that. You know, Jesus Christ came in flesh. But I'll tell you what, the heart, of, the heart of God is divine. And his heart broke because he looked at Jerusalem and notice what he said. He said, if you had known this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. If you had known, if you had accepted, if you would have seen the miracles, the signs, the wonders, if you would have just seen those and accepted them for what they were. And here's a spiritual principle, folks. When we don't respond to the truth that God has given us, there is a dangerous point where, you know what? If we don't use our eyes, then we'll become blind. They saw all of it. They refused to believe it. And then he said, now it's too late. The judgment of God has fallen upon you. Think about Pharaoh. All the miracles that were done in his sight, he saw them all. And the Bible says that, you know, he hardened his heart. And then the Bible tells us, then God finished it off. He hardened it to a point, then God says, okay, now you won't be able to hear the truth. Now you won't be able to see Jesus for who he is. And the judgment of God came, and it started that moment in time where their hearts were hardened. He looked across the Kidron Valley. He saw these great walls of Jerusalem. He saw and he knew what was going to happen in 70 AD. Titus totally destroyed the city, didn't leave one stone upon another. And the persecution and the, and the judgment of God came exactly as he said. And Jesus wept over what he knew was going to happen my question for you is this is he weeping over you because if you refuse to accept what he is telling you you refuse to accept the peace offering then he's weeping over you because he knows the judgment of God is upon you I pray that he's not weeping over you today that you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins he goes on, that's the consequences, and the, and the cause behind it was that they simply refused to believe. And in closing, as we put all this together in verses 45 through 48, there were plans that were being made to destroy Jesus. We know that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, the, the religious leader said, hey, you know what, we've got to kill him and kill Lazarus too because what's going to happen is Rome's coming in here. We're going to lose our place in history. We're going to lose our positions of authority. We've got to get rid of this guy. And Jesus went in and he entered the temple and he began to cast out those who were, were selling. The place that this took place was the temple. He said, it is written, I want you to know this, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a robber's den. My house. He said, Jesus, who do you think you are? And he said, this is my house. Who do I think I am? I know who I am. I'm God in human flesh, the very Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he went in, and this is the next day, he went in and he cast out and he began to throw over the tables and cast out the money changers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And those who were conspiring against him were the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything. They had a problem, folks. And it's a problem that everybody has that comes in opposition with God. They had a problem. They couldn't find any cause to hold against him. And the people were hanging on his every word. 
are you? Do you really hang on every word? Or just the ones that are comfortable? Do you hang on every word? In closing, God's word will be fulfilled exactly as he says, with or without our cooperation. So I would suggest cooperate. Right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And so we have the freedom to choose to do that today out of our own free will. As God is calling you, if he has chosen you, if the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you of sin and your need to repent, then today is the day of the Lord. Call upon him and you won't be disappointed. God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead. And I receive him today as my very Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do with me whatever you want. Be available. Do the work that he has called you to do. Manage the resources that he has given to you for his purposes and for his glory. So when he comes to you and says, hey, I have need of that, there'll be no argument. It's yours. Do with it whatever you would like. Praise him in everything. Stop whining and complaining. That's what the world does. Let's praise him. It drives people crazy. You ever been around people that like to complain? And you find the positive thing, the up thing, the encouraging thing? They, they hate that. Because they don't know how to respond to that. Praise God. Praise him with, in, in everything. And lastly... Don't let anybody silence your voice. It is not an option. I love what the disciples said when they were beaten and they said, shut up or we're going to beat you. And they beat him and they said, shut up. And they said, you know what? As for us, you know, we can't decide. We can't say one thing or the other. But one thing that we do know is that uh, we are here to praise the Lord. We are here to proclaim his name. We are here as his witnesses. We are here to testify before the world who he is. We're to confess him with our mouth. You know, if if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Because it's with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with his mouth he confesses unto salvation. We need to open our mouths and let this world know that we're still here. And we can make a difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within the hearts of those who have trusted in Christ. We have not been given a spirit of timidity or fear, but of one of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God, I pray that we as your people will become much more vocal about who you are and what is right and what is wrong in your sight. That we will make a difference. Each one of us, one person, can make a difference in a dark culture. May we rise up. May we be heard. And may we always, in every way, give you thanks and praise and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.